On Sundays in the Cathedral, we've been working through a series of sermons on the Bible's challenge to a dead world. Each sermon is arguing along similar lines while looking at different issues of the world, such as meaning or individualism or feminism, and tonight's uh, talk is the one that we've come from, from homosexuality. You can download these kinds of talks from philipjensen.com, which uh, just puts up my talks and my articles that I read as I churn them out each week. The argument of the Bible commences with creation, that God has made everything out of nothing for his purpose and his satisfaction, and that he's made humanity in his image to rule over the world, to care for the world, to be his representatives to the world. In this creation of humans, we find our meaning and our purpose in the world, but we also find our community, the unity of the family, coming from the reproductive sexual coupling of male and female. However, secondly, into the creation came sin and death. Humanity chose not God's way, but our way, to rebel against God, choosing to rule the world by our own knowledge of good and evil rather than by his knowledge of good and evil. Yet this rebellion has devastating effects that God warned of, which he called dying. On the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And we have been living in this death ever since in a disordered world of pain and suffering, difficulty and immorality. So humans, humanity was driven out of the garden. At the end of chapter 3 of Genesis you see the reason why. So that we will not have access to the tree of life. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. We became like cut flowers, blooming while dead. You put them in the vase, they'll still open up, they'll still give out fragrance, they'll still show their beauty, but they're actually dead. And it's just a matter of time before they wither and their petals fall and they stink. And that's us. We are going through that phase of existence of dead flowers doing wonderful things before we die and stink. So we've developed our cultures in this dead world. Our cultures are the human responses to the death sentence we're all living under. They're our attempt to organise life as we now know it outside the Garden of Eden in a way that will make sense of rebellious humanity, in a way that will make sense of the disordered world that we live in. And there's a variety of these cultures, but they're all expressions of sinful, rebellious humans trying to make 
the world in our image, trying to make sense of the fallen world, trying to express our sinfulness in a satisfactory way. But God's way of dealing with the dead world is Christ under judgment. For he enters into the world, sinless though he was, and takes upon himself the condemnation we all deserve in order to deal with our sin by his death on the cross. Tomorrow night, Sunday morning, a great privilege that you've invited me to be preaching here for you and I will be preaching on a much, much more enjoyable sermon than any of the talks I'm giving now as we look at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and I am looking forward to that great privilege and opportunity and more. He so completely deals with our condemnation that he's not contained by our death but rises from the dead and pours his spirit out upon us to give us new birth, new life, new creation that happens. That is, Christians are now in eternal life. Already we're there, raised to seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, as Ephesians says. But we're still here in the world of death. So we live in two worlds at the same time. Physically, humanly, you're sitting in Singapore. Spiritually, really, you're sitting in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. And that gives us tension. That gives us conflict within ourselves between our true spiritual reality and our physical reality that we are in here. We're still in the world of rebellion against God and judgment of God. Though we gather together in Christian family every now and then as a foretaste of heaven. While we're still living in human cultures that are trying to make sense of the senseless nature of death, Christians are always countercultural people. We are never really to be at home in our culture. Whitefellas Anglo Saxon culture has had the great benefits of hundreds of years of Christian influence, but is not Christian. The British Anglo-Saxon culture is not Christian any more than the Chinese culture or the Indonesian or the Malay or the whatever culture you come from. If you're a Christian, you're to be counter your own culture. You shouldn't be comfortable in your own culture because your own culture is a sinful attempt at making sense of the senseless world we live in outside the Garden of Eden. Whereas the Gospel makes sense of God's world and is different. And with this background we turn our attention to the culture of homosexuality. And here I need just to clarify my language. Homosexuality is having sexual relations with someone of the same sex as opposed to heterosexuality is having sexual relations with someone of the opposite sex. By gay, I mean the culture that approves of homosexuality. Not that I think it's gay in the old sense of word of light-hearted fun and gaiety. It's anything but that. Neither homosexual or gay are adequate to describe a person's identity. They may be your inclinations, they may be your practices, but you don't define who you are by your sexuality or your sexual behaviour only. It's only a small part of your identity. 
I, I work with alcoholics and AA teaches them to stand up and introduce themselves. My name is Philip and I'm an alcoholic. That's not true. You see, what they really should be saying is, my name is Philip and I'm a Christian who has problems with alcohol abuse. It's a different thing to identify myself as an alcoholic. And so this identity thing, I'm gay, is a false identity, whoever you may be. Gay is the culture of approving and promoting homosexual behaviour. Now, like so many of the topics in this series, the, the subject involves considerable personal pain. For we live in a disordered world where under the judgment of God, pain, sorrowing, suffering are unevenly distributed. The lives we live here on earth are part of a bigger world whose plot is opposition to God and whose experience is that of death and dying. And so it's not my fault that my father is a drunkard or that my mother is a gambler. It's not my fault that I'm born with poor eyesight or that I've become deaf or disabled. It's not my fault that I was raised in poverty or in a society without justice or in war. It's, it's not your fault where you have been born and how you have been raised and what family you've come from. That's all part of the disordered, unhappy world. Suffering and unhappiness of the disordered world is unevenly distributed amongst humans. And the suffering and unhappiness of a disordered sex lives are part of the misery of people's use and abuse of each other and of themselves. Having homosexual feelings or desires is often not a choice that people make for themselves. It's not something that people grow up wanting for their future. It's not a choice that people ever want for their children. I've never heard of parents praying that their children would grow up to be homosexuals. I've seen parents struggling to accept their children's homosexual behaviour, but no parent wants their child to be caught into the homosexual world. It's often a life of sadness and difficulty and distress commonly associated with depression and disproportionately leading to suicide. Because it involves crossing one of the fundamental taboos of humanity. And it has often resulted, therefore, in expressions of disgust from other people, which has led to ostracism and worse in the lives of the people who find themselves without choice in preference of a lifestyle that they didn't want themselves. However, the arguments about homosexuality have been plagued not so much by the personal pain, that means we have to talk fairly carefully and lovingly and respectfully, but by public politics. Public politics entering into the realms of debate Using public relations and advertising means posturing and shouting with little reliable information resulting in much confusion. Sadly, the confusion is not caused by just one side of the debate. I've read a lot about homosexuality in the last few months 
and I've come across claims and counterclaims from both sides of the debate and when I've checked them out they're wrong on both sides of the debate. They've exaggerated, they've misquoted, they've misunderstood each other or the scientific method or the statistical information and especially sampling methods. And so people are arguing wrongly from both sides. There's been a serious and successful attempt though to change society's view of the acceptability of homosexuality culminating at the moment with the attempt to accept, accept same-sex marriage as marriage. Famously this was all outlined in America in a book in 1990 called After the Ball by two writers Kirk and Madsen. It came as a response to the AIDS crisis. For just in 1990, AIDS was spreading everywhere, no answer to it, no solution to it, great fear that, great fear of AIDS itself, but great fear that people caught with this would actually be put into separate, would be ostracised, would be cut out of society completely and put into institutions for, with plagues of other times, that is what we've done, especially when we don't know how, is it infectious, is it contagious, what do we do with people with this disease? The AIDS community, the, sorry, the, the homosexual community was deeply troubled by it. The possibility that homosexuality would be further prosecuted and persecuted was very real in their minds and led to great gatherings of them to discuss the way forward. One way forward was put forward in this book, After the Ball. For the ball's now over, AIDS has come. What do we do? In its introduction, we read... As cynical as it may seem, AIDS gives us a chance, however brief, to establish ourselves as a victimised minority legitimately deserving of America's special protection and care. It goes on in the introduction. The campaign we outline in this book, though complex, depends centrally upon a program of unabashed propaganda firmly founded in long-established principles of psychology and advertising. Notice those words? Unabashed propaganda. That is what Western civilization has been bashed with for the last 24 years. When they tried to take hold of the AIDS crisis which threatened their very existence, to use it as an opportunity for recasting the whole debate in their favour. The book has a program of silencing enemies, desensitising the community to homosexuality and jamming and converting people. Too long for me to explain at the moment, especially the last one. But it has pages of portfolio of pro-gay advertising which has eight key principles and if you hear these through you'll see what has happened in, I presume, Singapore, certainly what's happened in Australia in the last 24 years. Some of these are simple and straightforward principles of any group wanting to get its message across. So number one, communicate, don't just express yourself. 
Instead of shouting your message, we need to engage with the community in ways that they will listen to and support us. Or number two, appeal to ambivalent sceptics. I mean, the first people to win are not your opponents, but the people who are already ambivalent, two-minded about things and close to you. Number three, make gays look good. Well, of course, if you, if you want to present yourself in the best possible light to win people over, that's all very natural. But when you look a little closer, you start to understand the message and method that has changed a culture, making a taboo into a moral imperative within a generation. It is one of the most extraordinary public relations exercise in the history of mankind to turn a long-term, thousands of years taboo into a moral imperative in one generation is extraordinary. But they did it. How? Number three on their list of keep talking, no, I'm just running ahead of you, keep talking, desensitise, don't shock. That is, they want to talk and desensitise. Shut up about what you are really doing. I've got a quote from them then. Does that come up next? Yes, there we go. Sorry, you are right, I'm just not looking clearly. The public should not be shocked and repelled by premature exposure to homosexual behaviour itself. Instead, the imagery of sex per se should be downplayed and the issue of gay rights reduced as far as possible to an abstract social question. That's exactly where it is. What they talk about today is marriage equality. What they do not talk about is what they do in the bedroom. That is not discussed. They, you keep that out of the discussion at all. We're not actually talking about the mechanics of homosexual sexuality. We're talking about rights equality, freedoms, these kinds of, that, that's where we're at, abstract concepts. In fact, there's a section in the book of nearly a hundred pages, that's about a quarter of the book, outlining the totally unacceptable practices of the gay lifestyle that need to be changed and certainly mustn't be talked about or advertised for they are so unacceptable for their campaign whole range of things, like at that point in time they had in the gay umbrella um, the, the pedophiles. Well, they, the pedophiles are not in the gay umbrella anymore. They, got, they, they completely distanced themselves from the boy love society because there's no way you could make gays acceptable at the same time as including pedophilia. So that just got chopped out. So there's a whole range of things of making acceptable. Number four, keep the message single-minded. Gay rights. Rights, not freedoms. See, freedom involves a choice, and choice implies morality of behaviour, and therefore you could be criticised for it. Whereas rights involve no choice or behaviour, but your existence and your legality. And you never have to argue for rights. Your rights are your rights. They're inalienable. They are beyond question. They're your rights, you see. So much better to argue for rights than for freedoms. But how to appeal to the ambivalent sceptics? Well, number six, I think it is, give potential protectors a just cause. Make the ambivalent sceptics your protectors. Appeal to them to fight for your rights in a cause, therefore, of justice, not morality. That's a very clever technique, that one, isn't it? Because you're again getting a whole heterosexual community arguing for justice for you. 
the younger generation, the high schoolers in Sydney are all into it. But not just the high schoolers. One of my colleagues in a city living, his child was in the primary school debate about who should be elected as the school captain, age 11. There were four candidates. Three of the candidates argued that the reason they should be elected is because they stood for gay rights. 11-year-olds campaigning for gay rights in order to win an election as a school captain. You see how give potential protectors a just cause. Very powerful technique. And a key to get people active like this is outrage. They say few are motivated over the long haul by zeal or saintliness. The sustaining emotional steam comes not from love, but from rage. You have to get people enraged to maintain the rage to bring about the change. So the critical then to put that the whole movement is portray gays as victims, not aggressors. For that will arouse rage in the cause of justice and rights. This has to be done on many fronts. And sadly, my brothers and sisters, many of them were fair and right. You see, AIDS required shifting homosexuality from a chosen lifestyle to a genetic determinism. Interestingly, up until AIDS, the homosexual community were all arguing that it was a lifestyle they chose because they were terrified of the medical fraternity giving them lobotomies and, and, and doing all kinds of weird things to their psychiatric well-being. And so they wanted to say, this is our choice. It's got nothing to do with my genetic background or my mental makeup or whatever. It's a choice, a lifestyle choice. Well, once AIDS came, that argument was... They didn't want that one. So now it's genetic. I can't help it. It's not my fault. I'm a victim of a disease. I'm a victim because I was born this way. God made me this way. And so the shift came. Legalities. They had to show that they were being unfairly treated. And they were. They're visiting rights in hospitals. Um, the, the, the possibilities of, of uh, sharing ownership of land or inheriting from each other and so on. And then there were bashings. They've written up and increased the, the news about bashings and there were bashings. Physical violence is never ever right. It's an abhorrent evil that should never be overlooked but our community did overlook bashings of homosexual people. And so these were raised. Likewise, bullying in the schoolyard. Bullying is never acceptable. Never acceptable for any reason. But now bullying became a great reason and a great purpose of rage because we're victims, our children at school. And so now throughout the New South Wales Department of Education, there are terrific anti-bullying programs which are nearly all about not bullying homosexuality which leads you to primary school children, you see, standing up for the rights of the homosexuals. And of course they've got to talk about youth suicide because the average age of 
homosexual uh, participants in their death is a lot younger than the community in general and the average is brought down because of the number of suicides amongst their community. So you see given AIDS, given the legal problems they've got, bashings, bullyings and youth suicide, they are the victims of something that is beyond their control. But to have victims you really need to have somebody to blame. Somebody you can point at as the victimizer, the evil person, the wicked person who is doing this to them. And it was important to make the victimizers look bad. All those quotes I have there in front of you, they're all in the book. They're the words of the book. I've taken the words from the books. They're not mine. They're theirs. Make the victimizers look bad. That is, the people who are ambivalent close to you, win them over. Then try and win the middle ground who don't know one way or t'other at all. But the opponents, you'll never win them, so make them the victimizers who look bad. Well, who are the victimizers who look bad? Not those who bash them on the streets. They would be good people to have, but you don't know who they are, and there's only a handful of them. Not the families who abused them and led them very often into homosexuality by the way they raised them, because you want to win the families back over. You don't want to alienate the families. Not the, the bullies in the schoolyard, because they'll grow out of that. We want to shame them, not make them bad. Certainly not the government. We don't want the government to be the victimised, because we want the government to change the law. So don't make them the bad guys. So who's left to demonise as the, as the, as the victimisers? Religious conservatives. It's the only group that's left. Those who want to say that homosexual activity is wrong. Those who want to say that it's immoral. And so, in the book we read, this entails publicising support by moderate churches and raising serious theological objections to conservative biblical teachings. Or again, portraying such institutions, conservative churches, as antiquated backwaters badly out of step with the times and with the latest findings of psychology. And again, against the, old, the tug of old-time religion, they were Americans, one must set the mightier pull of science and public opinion, the shield and sword of the accursed secular humanism. Such an unholy alliance has already worked well against churches on subjects, topics like divorce and abortion. So, my Bible-believing friends, we will be portrayed as narrow-minded bigots living in the past, denying the best of science, hating and fearful, homo-hating homophobics. Hello. <laughs> Here you are. Nobody has proven that this book is the handbook for social change, but its descriptions and predictions fit very closely with exactly what has happened. Whether the book did it and people used it as a conspiracy or not, as you read the book and you think of the last 25 years, it's hard to believe they wrote it in 1990 instead of in 2014. This campaign has led a very conflicted culture. 
Debates and media blitzes have moved ambivalent sceptics to become the protectors and to change the law, divide political parties and churches and denominations. My own Anglican communion has basically been destroyed worldwide by the split on the subject of homosexuality. My Presbyterian friends in Scotland have been evicted from their churches because of the belief in the necessity of having homosexual clergymen in the Church of Scotland, the Presbyterian Church from which all Presbyterian churches have come, really. It's, it's affected us everywhere. Confusion abounds. Marriages recognised in the United Kingdom and in New Zealand are not recognised in Australia, as the political agenda is forced by England upon us. Uh, just recently, a couple of Australians who were British citizens also, because we've got dual citizenship, went to the British Embassy in Sydney and got married in the British Embassy, two men, and then walked out and had a press conference saying, we're not married here, but we are married on the other side of the fence. Isn't the law stupid? It's time to change. That kind of thing is happening and will just persistently happen. The conflict's deeper still, though, because the evidence of science is not all one-sided and the morality issue won't go away, nor be simply swallowed up into this legislation. You see, adultery is legal, but it's not moral. Nor is it widely accepted in our community, though it may be widely practised. When you ask people who do they hate the most, pedophiles come out the top. But the next person they hate the most is the adulterous marriage wrecker. The person, the single person, who will break up a marriage adulterously is the second most hated person in the society. Adultery is legal, but it's not moral and it's not widely accepted. The appeal to science has led to research in this area, but the average citizen seeking to be informed will be overwhelmed by claims and counterclaims because the political process of silencing all opposition is alive and well as journalists jump to publish findings from one side of the academic debate and ignoring the other. We can't even get agreement as to how widespread homosexuality in the land is. The old Kinsey figures of 10% of males has been shown to be wrong over and over again, but it's held on to fanatically for political reasons, not for scientific reasons or factual reasons. Now, any scientific finding that isn't written by gays is contested and rejected by the community, so that only pro-gay science can be quoted as being evidence in the debate as if gay scientists are unbiased while all other scientists are biased. Yet, even if we only refer to the pro-gay research, which is what I'm going to do now, the case for biological determinism that makes homosexuality determined by genes is not sustained by the evidence. David Benkoff is a Jewish gay academic and freelance writer. He summed up the present state of knowledge of scholars of gay history and anthropology, saying almost all pro-gay have decisively shown that gayness is a product of Western society originating about 150 years ago. That's not to say there weren't homosexual acts 
at other times in other places. But the concept of I am gay, the sense of my identity is gay, the sense that I am only oriented towards one sex, that is a modern invention. We actually know when the word homosexual used like that first came into, in, into existence and it's about 150 years ago. He says, according to the experts on homosexuality across centuries and continents, being gay is a relatively recent social construction. Few scholars with advanced degrees in anthropology or history who concentrate on homosexuality believe gays have existed in any cultures before or outside ours, much less in all cultures. He goes on, these professors working closely with an ever-growing body of knowledge that directly contradicts born that way ideology. And again, journalists trumpet every biological study that even hints that gayness and straightness might be hardwired, but they show little interest in the abundant social science research showing that sexual orientation cannot be innate. I'm not quoting a Christian here, I'm quoting a Jew. I'm not quoting a heterosexual Jew, I'm quoting a homosexual Jew. He's an academic who lectures in many institutions in gay studies. It cannot be, he's saying. The gay gene hasn't been discovered yet and frankly looks less and less likely to be discovered. Indeed, the leading gay advocates have rejected the idea Peter Tatchell is an Australian but a leader of the UK movement of, uh, of gays for the last 25 or so years. He writes, When genes and hormones predispose a person to a particular sexual orientation, they do not determine it. They are significant influences, not the sole cause. Other factors are also at work. Social expectation, cultural values, peer pressure, for instance, push us towards heterosexuality. Without pro-straight influences, more people might be lesbian, gay or bisexual. Just, just look at that quote for a moment. Cultural values and peer pressures push us towards heterosexuality. And if we don't have those, we'll have more people who are homosexual. Well, do we want more people to be homosexual? Do we want more people to be heterosexual? No one wants to be homosexual. They are, they come to accept it, they come to be proud of it, they come to promote it, but they didn't want to be it. And he is saying it's not something biologically determined. We may be influenced by our biology, but education. But in the New South Wales Department of Education, it's all pro-gay. So where do you think Australia's going? He goes on, biological determinist thesis has another major flaw. If we're all born either gay or straight, how do they explain people who switch in midlife from happy heterosexuality to happy homosexuality and vice versa? Because the, the gay community says, I'm born this way, it's not my fault, God made me this way. And I can't change. No one has ever changed. It is impossible to change. And so it's not my fault. But the trouble is there's no evidence that people are born that way. And there is evidence that people have changed from that way. 
And here is a leading homosexual. He's one of the great leaders of the political movement of the gays. And look what he's saying. Much as I would love, he goes on, much as I would love to go along with the emerging born gay consensus, I can't. The evidence doesn't support the idea that sexuality is a fixed biological given. Now, I could quote many other people more reputable than him, so to speak, but of course they're all heterosexuals, they're all anti-gay, so no one will believe them even though they can show you the evidences. But here I'm showing you the homosexual side. Who is saying it? Similarly, Australia's leading gay academic is Professor Dennis Altman. He also is not persuaded that homosexuality is genetic or innate. The evidence for the gay agenda are not as simple and as straightforward as they claim. Last month, a research paper from the Australian Institute for Suicide Research and Prevention reported that gay suicide is often related to stress in romantic relationships. It's not got to do with us religious people persecuting them. It's not got to do with their families persecuting them. It's that homosexual relationships are notoriously unstable. And so the leader of the research, Dr Delaney Skerritt, concluded, we tend to assume that the psychological distress LGBTI um, people are often going through is due to family rejection. But it seems that's not so much the case. The conflict seems to be largely related to relationship problems with partners. So we get blamed for their suicides. That they are actually affecting each other. Now while we're being inundated with pro-gay politics, the Bible's challenge to homosexuality continues to stand. But we must understand it, not as narrow-minded, bigots, hate-filled homophobics that we're being presented as our culture, but as God's enlightened word for the benefit of all people. So let's turn to our Bible outline as I started the sermon with the sermon to talk with firstly notice creation God has created us in his image for his purpose and part of that creation is our sexual polarity male and female he created us in Genesis 1 to multiply and fill the earth man and woman he created us in Genesis 2 that we may leave our parents and be united as husband and wife this is Jesus view of marriage Creation, men and women. For he quoted this in Matthew 19. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Do not believe it when people say Jesus never spoke against homosexual marriage. Jesus' view of marriage and of humanity was the Bible's view of heterosexuality. For the creation of the world is followed in Genesis 3 with sin and death. We can know the ideal that God has created and we can see from it how we should live. But sin means we no longer want to live God's way and the judgment of death means we no longer find it easy to live God's way for we live in a disordered world of suffering. 
Part of our sinfulness and the disordered nature of society is that we choose to use our sexuality in ways and for purposes other than that we've been created. So throughout the Bible we see people committing adultery, fornication, incest, prostitution, rape, polygamy and yes, homosexuality. They're all there in the Bible. The awful events of Sodom before its destruction and the laws we read from Leviticus recount some of sinful humanity's ability to misuse God's created sexual pattern. And it's not only in the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, homosexuality is listed amongst the other sinful practices that bring the judgment of God. Yet the passage to read from Romans, really, in Romans 1.18, gives an added explanation. Turn in your Bibles there to Romans 1, from verse 18 onwards, for homosexuality. It's an added explanation. It's a different explanation than most people expect. For there you will see homosexuality is not simply sinful. It's also part of the judgment of God on sinful humanity. The passage starts at Romans 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the wrath of God against the human preference for unrighteousness and suppression of the truth. It's seen in a threefold statement that you see in verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonourable passions. And in verse 28, and since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That is, when we turn aside to do our own thing, God's judgment includes letting us. He gives us our head. He lets us go to our own chosen folly and destruction. When my son was a little boy, we used to play games together, board games, dominoes, things like that. I was always keen for him to play these games and introduce them to him when he wasn't old enough to understand them. But it didn't matter to him because he used to make up the rules. The rules didn't make the slightest sense, except for one principal part, he always won. But he always got sick of the games because the games were stupid. That's because he didn't play by the rules, or the rules that his ever-intelligent father could have shared with him, but he insisted on playing his own rules, which were stupid, and so always concluded this is a stupid game. That's humanity. We won't do it God's way, so God says, okay, well, you do it your way. And look at the mess we get ourselves in. That is the judgment of God. We think we're being wise when we're being foolish. We choose to do the very things that harm us and destroy us. An expression of this is our choice of homosexuality. Though not only that, for down in verse 29, following its other things, slandering, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. But look at the last verse, 32. Though they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but 
give approval to those who practice them. And here we see human culture entering to the picture of God's judgment of death. For our pundits, our journalists, our intellectual leaders, our chattering classes will rationalise evil into good, will justify our behaviour and approve our sinfulness, explaining and demonstrating God's ways are not right or just, but sin, it's right, it's just. The atheist Marxist academic Dennis Altman agrees with the feminist politician Julia Gillard. There's no point having gay marriage, he says, for there's no point getting married at all. Marriage is an evil to be avoided. Feminists obscured the heterosexual nature of creation. Gays have ridden in on the cultural coattails of the feminists. For feminists said there's not men and women, there's just gender in your mind. Rubbish. Men, don't try and have babies. Doesn't work. Never will. We are different. Biology may not be destiny, but it's not an irrelevance either. The feminists, you see, said there are not men, there are not women, they're just persons. Well, if there's not men and there's not women, there's just persons, what's to stop two persons marrying? They're both men or they're both women, but we don't talk about men and women now, we talk about persons. We don't talk about husbands and wives, we talk about partners. So why not have two male partners or two female partners? The feminists have created the groundswell that the homosexuals have been able to come in on. And that's what we expect when people turn away from God. It's precisely what has happened in Western culture over 200 years ago when the culture turned away from centering upon God to center upon humanity and as a result reinvented itself and its morality into the mess that we see today and that the Bible is challenging. One such reinvention is precisely the one predicted in the Bible, namely that eventually we would turn away from the created order of men and women united sexually to produce an ever-expanding humanity into sensualists who will use sex for their own satisfaction, their own pleasure, and so turn from its created pattern into homosexuality, into adultery, into fornication, into pornography, into our world. It's for this sinfulness and because of God's wrath that Christ came into the world to live and to die as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, to turn aside God's wrath upon us and to pour out his spirit to transform our lives. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as we come up the very home straight now. 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 9. I read this passage at Cambridge University in 2004 at a uh, university mission. I was reported to the Cambridge police uh, and uh, chased around the world by the journalists. London Times rang up to find out what I said about homosexuality. Fascinating really. I did nothing, I mentioned nothing about homosexuality in the talk I gave other than read this passage. But by reading this passage, I could be reported to the police in England. 
Such is the power of the homosexual censorship. I didn't speak about homosexuality there because it was a room full of Englishmen and I knew adultery was a much more common problem than homosexuality and so I preached a sermon on adultery, which is also in the passage. And so you can call me an adulterophobe if you like. <laughs> Verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You're going to now get seven quick things on this passage. You don't believe it, but they're going to be quick. Number one, keep your eye on the passage and on the screen. Unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God. The passage says that, doesn't it? Number two, don't be deceived. The passage says that, doesn't it? Don't be deceived. You don't say that unless there's a potential for deception. Sure is a potential for deception. Don't be deceived. Number three, unrighteousness that will not inherit the kingdom of God includes adultery and homosexuality. Number four, such were some of you. I love that. Verse 11, see some of the people in the Corinthian church were homosexual, were adulterers, were slanderers. Such were some of you. They're not now, it's not such are some of you, but such were some of you. What happened? Three times the Greek uses the word but. But you were washed. Fascinating how often people talk of abuse in sexuality as being defiled. Rape victims feel they have to have baths, they have to wash, they have to shower to clean themselves. But you were washed. Secondly, but you were sanctified, set aside as God's people. But you were justified, treated as if you had never sinned because of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't that a wonderful passage? Don't be deceived, friends. This kind of behaviour takes you to hell. But this kind of behaviour is not the last word. The Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection and the pouring out of his spirit can mean that what you were is not what you will be. You will be washed, you'll be set aside, you'll be justified. So we Christians have been reborn while we're still living here in this world of death. We're no longer the same as we used to be. We're no longer the same as those around us. But we know that this change is by the grace of God and so we don't look down upon those who are still in the bondage of death. But rather hold out to them the saving message of grace and mercy and forgiveness that they too might find in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ what we have found. That they too might come from the world of sin and death into the kingdom of Christ and salvation. So we Christians can and do struggle with our disordered sexual natures, be it with adultery or pornography or prostitution or, yes, homosexuality. We, we too struggle. 
Which is why it's so important for us to hear that word in that passage. Do not be deceived. For the great pressure upon us at the moment in homosexuality in our community is the propaganda program that has been operating for 25 years and has deceived nearly everybody. Do not be deceived. Those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But, 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 let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death, for his resurrection. We thank you for the spirit that can give us new life. We thank you for washing us clean of all our sins, whatever they may be. We thank you, Father, for the knowledge that no sin is worse or better than any. They're all sin. They have different consequences, but they are all part of our rebellion against you. We pray, Father, for those who struggle with sexual sins, be it pornography or adultery, be it fornication or be it homosexuality. We pray, Heavenly Father, that each of us who struggle might know of your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy, and by your Spirit will know of repentance and change and transformation, that as your new people we may live differently the life that would bring praise and glory to you. We pray, Father, for the community around us that you would help us to explain to them gently, kindly and mercifully the truth of living your way, not our way. That we, as a community, as a society, will not be deceived by those who would approve of the practices that lead to death that we might be able to sustain morality, private and public morality in our society. But yet we may do it in such loving measure, Father, that those who have fallen, those who are entrapped, those who are addicted to behaviours that are ungodly, might hear of grace and mercy and forgiveness and pardon, because they hear from us of your son's death on our behalf and his resurrection, that they might turn back to you and find peace in fellowship with you. And we ask it through the one and only one who can make it possible, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.